This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Hi, podcast listeners. For the next few weeks, we'll be running a survey from our advertising team. We want to make sure the ads on our show actually match our audience's interests, and we can't do that unless you tell us about yourself. So please visit sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and click a few boxes for us. I've been through the survey. It's quick, painless, and there's a chance to win a gift card. So please go to sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 11th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, staff writer Gretchen Vogel joins me to talk about a new method for detecting ancient molecules in dinosaur fossils. We're talking 300 million year old molecules. And I talk with Zeng Fun Liu about a twist on cooling technologies that uses rubber bands or memory metals to chill things down. Now we have Gretchen Vogel, a staff writer for science. She's here to talk with us about a new technique for looking at organic molecules. These are from animals, from fossils, from way back. We're talking hundreds of millions of years. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, Sarah. Is that number right? Is it hundreds of millions of years for these molecules? Correct. Yes. The oldest ones they've found are 500 or a little bit more than 500 million years old. And how does that compare with ancient DNA or proteins from ancient animals? Yeah, it's much, much older. So ancient DNA has a huge amount that it can tell us about previous life, animals and humans, but only up to tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. DNA sequences degrade fairly rapidly, relatively speaking. Proteins can last longer, up to 4 million years or so. And those can also give you lots of information. If you can sequence the proteins, you can tell lots of things about how animals were related. Beyond that, some people have claimed to find intact proteins from dinosaurs, but those claims have remained controversial. Well, what about these molecules? They're not DNA, they're not protein, they're something a little bit different. Correct, they're called protein residues, essentially. Scientists call them protein fossilization products, and they are complex polymers that form from proteins and lipids and sugars after death during the fossilization process. They must be super, super tough if they're surviving for so long. Yes, they are. They're actually similar to some molecules that you're probably fairly familiar with. They're formed by reactions very similar to reactions called the Maillard reactions that happen in food chemistry. 
So anytime hmm. you toast something or brown something or grill something, molecules similar to these form. And they're the kind of things that are left over on your grill that you have to scrub off. So anyone who scrubbed a grill knows that these things are pretty tough. They're definitely not water soluble and yeah. uh, microbes don't eat them and uh, they don't wash away. And this isn't cooking per se, but there is a chemical process here that's breaking down all these components of the cell and turning them into something else. So how do we know their identity? Like what can we know about their original form before all these chemical processes happened? Yeah, what the researchers that I'm writing about have discovered, their names are Yasmina Veeman and Derek Briggs, and they work at Yale University. And what they found out is that these really tough polymers do still contain some of the original information that the proteins contained when the animal was alive. And that's because although they're transformed into these complex polymers, different proteins form different polymers. And using a technique called Raman spectroscopy, they can get a fingerprint of the chemical bonds that are in these polymers. And from those fingerprints, they can compare different fossils and figure out interesting things about how, um, how those animals might have been related and even things about their metabolism, whether they were warm-blooded or cold-blooded. Well, how would they do that? How would they be able to tease out their metabolism from this collection of molecular products? Yeah, that's one of the insights that these researchers have had that's especially interesting. They realized that in living cells, similar reactions also take place. And the faster an animal's metabolism, the faster a cell's metabolism, the more of these reactions take place. And so even during life, some of these complex polymers build up in cells. And they realized that although more of them form after death in the fossilization process, they could sort of subtract those fossilization polymers that had formed and see still a signature of how many of these complex polymers might have formed during the animal's life. And that gives them a clue about how fast the animal's metabolism was. That speed of the metabolism is, is kind of an indicator if they were warm-blooded or cold-blooded. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of years ago, so we're talking about dinosaurs. Correct, exactly. And people had, not suspected, but had uh, started to conclude that at least some dinosaurs were probably warm-blooded, had a fairly fast metabolism. Tyrannosaurus rex, for example, and another kind of dinosaur called Deinonychus, which was the basis for the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. That was actually one of the first dinosaurs that inspired the idea that dinosaurs, at least some of them, may have been fast runners and um, had a correspondingly fast metabolism. And does this new technique support those earlier conclusions? Yes. They looked at the Raman spectra from a whole range of, of fossils, and it looks like two-legged dinosaurs um, like Velociraptor or Deinonychus or Tyrannosaurus rex, they had fairly fast metabolisms. And other dinosaurs, the quadrupedal ones that walked on all fours and were probably a bit slower, that they had much slower metabolisms. It looks like the ancestors of lizards and snakes were, for example, cold-blooded. And fossil mammals turned out to be warm-blooded, as did pterosaurs, the largest creatures ever to, to fly. <laughs> It sounds like a lot of different specimens have been already examined using this technique. How common are these residues in the different fossils that we have in collections and museums? 
That's a great question. So it doesn't happen in every kind of fossil. It's a specific set of conditions that is conducive to this kind of preservation. And it turns out that it's sort of dark brown or black fossils in mm. light colored sediments that tend to be a clue. And so Yasmina Veeman, who works at Yale, had millions of fossils to look at at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. And she didn't scan millions of fossils, but more than 100, and has gone through and built up a fairly significant database of Raman spectra from a whole range of different fossils. Do we know why the dark brown fossils on a light background tend to have these kind of molecules? That's a sign or that's a, a characteristic of oxidative conditions. The environment surrounding the animal after it died was rich in reactive oxygen mole molecules mm -hmm. and dissolved metal ions. And that promotes these kinds of biochemical reactions called glycoxidation and lipoxidation, mm. which are big words, but they are the same kinds of reactions that happen when you grill something <laughs> or when you caramelize something. Okay. One, I really like this part of your story where you talk about how this was first happened upon. Can you, can you talk about that? As an undergrad, Feeman was part of the team that was studying color in dinosaur eggs. And she and her colleagues were some of the first to find that some dinosaur eggs were blue-green, sort of like Robin's eggs today. Mm -hmm. People had always thought that they were just white. As she was doing this work, she would dissolve pieces of fossil eggshells to remove the calcium and to isolate the pigments. And she found that there were, in some cases, were these sort of brown, crusty remains as well. And she thought, hmm, what is that? She looked at it under the microscope and it looked kind of like the organic matrix of eggshells. And she wondered if she was seeing bits of original tissue, but she didn't have time to characterize it until she came to Yale for her PhD. And there she used a similar technique with pieces of bone or teeth, and she found more residues. And they even looked like, yeah, blood vessels and cells and even nerve projections. And she thought, what in the world is this? So then she and uh, her PhD advisor, Derek Briggs, decided to look at them more carefully with Raman spectroscopy. Jasmina chose this technique, she said, because it's one that that is sort of exploratory. You don't have to, you're not looking for a specific thing. It records all the chemical bonds in a sample, and then you can sort of piece together what it is that you're seeing. A lot of biochemical techniques test for specific kinds of molecules, but if you don't know what you're looking for, then you can't find it. <laughs> so, and this is this is also non-destructive, right? So you don't have to dissolve your sample. Right. They started out looking at these residues that had come from destructive sampling, but then they realized once they had looked at those, they could also look at other kinds of fossils just using Raman spectroscopy that doesn't damage the fossil. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they found these signs of these complex polymers that Yasmina then recognized as the product of these Maillard reactions that uh, happen in food chemistry. Oh, wow. Are they going to continue to build up this database of profiles and different dinosaurs? Yes, right. They're building up a database that can help them compare more fossils with each other. They've also done a couple of proof of principle experiments. For example, they, they looked at a fossil called the Tully monster, which is this really strange creature from 300 million years ago from fossil beds in Illinois. Nobody has really been able to determine exactly what kind of 
thing it was. It's, it's this sort of oval shape with this long, weird appendage. And people thought, is it a worm? Is it some weird snail? Is it a vertebrate? And the paper in Nature in 2016 concluded that it was most likely probably some kind of really strange vertebrate based on morphology. But when they used the Raman spectroscopy to look at this critter's purported teeth, it looks like those teeth were probably made of collagen or keratin, which are two kinds of proteins that vertebrates make, rather than chitin, which would be something that a, an invertebrate would make. And so that chemical evidence is consistent with the morphological evidence that they had already put together. And that was another sign that they're finding real information in these in these Raman spectra. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's on board with this yet. What else could they do to further firm this up as a, a new technique for understanding the world of the dinosaurs? Some other researchers caution that they're not 100% convinced that all of the signatures that are being picked up by these Raman spectra are really from the original animal, mm -hmm. that there may be some bacterial contamination or some other deposits that might have settled into these fossils over millions of years. That's certainly a legitimate question to ask, although Veeman and Briggs say that they have looked for bacterial residues and can compare and that they've ruled those out in most cases. They've also looked for contaminants for things like glue or other preparation materials that have been applied mm -hmm. to these fossils. Beeman and Briggs and their colleagues also say that it's early days for this technique. They're really excited about the potential that it has, but they're hoping that more people start to use it and help to build up the databases and figure out exactly what kinds of questions these ancient protein residues might help to answer. Are there some big questions that these residues might help answer that people are very excited about? People are especially excited about this insight into metabolism because that's been a big question in paleontology. What animals were warm-blooded? What kinds of metabolisms did different animals have? For example, some of the, the giant sea creatures. Did they have a warm-blooded type of metabolism or were they? did they have a slower metabolism or some sort of mix of the two? The idea that you could get at some of those questions by a simple non-destructive scan of fossils is, is really exciting. All right, Gretchen, thank you so much. Thank you. Gretchen Vogel is a contributing correspondent for Science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Zhang Fen Liu about a new twist on cooling technologies. This week's episode is sponsored in part by Simon & Schuster, publishers of The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life by prize-winning science and nature writer David Quammen. The Tangled Tree chronicles pioneering scientists whose discoveries in molecular biology, horizontal gene transfer, and immunology have dramatically changed our understanding of evolution and life's history. Available now wherever books are sold. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, 
you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. If you ever stretched a rubber band and then let it go, you might have noticed that it changes temperature. It gets warmer when you stretch it and cooler when released. Zhang Feng Liu and colleagues use this principle behind this phenomena to make cooling devices. Hi, Zhang Feng. Hi, Sarah. Let's talk about what the principle is behind this strange effect. What causes heating and then cooling when something is stretched and released or twisted and released? There is a internal structure change since this is entropy change. Mm -hmm. With this entropy change, you get a energy change. The energy change will result in this heating. And during the inverse process, you give a inverse effect of this energy change. Mm -hmm. So you get cooling. When you stretch the rubber band, the rubber molecules will get organized. The entropy will decrease. The entropy is a term to describe the order. Say, if something in a good order, the entropy is low. Right, like a crystal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If something is very disordered, the entropy is high. Mm -hmm. If the entropy is high, everything will be stable. So when the entropy is low, it's not stable. When you put the rubber band from a high entropy to a low entropy, it is not stable. Mm -hmm. You have to have some energy change to get some energy released. So you get something heating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the reverse process, from an ordered state to a disordered state, it absorbs some heat mm -hmm. from the environment. So the environment will get cooled. Hmm. So this is the basic principle that underlies these cooling devices that you are trying to design. Why did you look at all these different materials, at rubber, at fishing line, at this nickel-titanium alloy? Why did you look at many different materials? The efficiency and uh, cooling is not very, very high for rubber. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of disadvantages for this polymer. This inspired us to find new materials. Okay. If you find structure change, you may find uh, efficient cooling. When they were subjected to twisting, how do they cool differently? For nickel-titanium, because it's metal, mm -hmm. you don't need to insert too much twist, and you get a large cooling. And the heating and the cooling you obtain can be transferred to water very fast, to the environment very fast. And when we use some other new materials, such as uh, fishing line, we find you also don't need to twist or don't need to do a lot of deformation. You get a very efficient cooling. Why are you twisting rather than stretching? So, you know, you can just stretch a rubber band. Why would you twist it? Why would you do one over the other? Because when you stretch a rubber band, you have to stretch it to seven times its length. And then release this lens, you get a large cooling, about 12 degree hmm. of cooling. 
but if you use twist, you can twist in the original length, or you can twist in the twice of its length, you already get at most 14 degree or 15 degree of cooling. Hmm. So you can make something that is smaller and still cools really well. Yes. Okay. What about the efficiency of a device that would use twisting and, you know, a special material to cool? Is the goal to get this technology more efficient than a refrigerator that you might have in your house or an air conditioner in a building? Yeah, this is a, another very good question. The refrigerator uses air compression. This is a kind of mechanism. The efficiency is about 60%. Mm-hmm. But this efficiency is not so high. You waste a lot of energy. Cooling costs about 20% of the electricity cost in the world. So we need to improve this efficiency. If you use twist, currently we get about 47% efficiency by twisting the rubber. If you stretch the rubber to 10 times its length and release, you get the efficiency is only 32%. So by twisting technology can already provide a little bit uh, a higher uh, close to the commercial one. Right. But if you optimize your material, you create the right system, you might actually beat a refrigerator that uses compression. <laughs> yes, because this is the first report we right. are working, <laughs> working on, on this. Okay. These materials that you looked at, rubber, fishing line, and nickel titanium, they're all very, very different. What would be an optimal material? What would the properties of a material that was best suited to twisting, getting things very cool? What do you think the properties of that material would be? We still need to optimize these materials for good uh, thermal conductivity, for cyclability. You oh, have yeah. to use it many, many times. Right. Yeah. You have to think about how to keep the efficiency during this uh, long time cyclability. Mm-hmm. For uh, next uh, step, we think it's uh, necessary to develop devices. How do you use this technology? And uh, how do you develop this device? And then you can, based on this research, find suitable materials for different uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. So you ac- you actually did make a device, a little tiny demo that cools water. Can you describe what it looks like and how it works? We use a plastic tube. We insert three nickel titanium wires, and we can twist these wires. We can untwist these wires within this tube. And during untwisting of this tube, we flow water through. So the water can take the cooling, can mm. be cooled. The water inlet is the room temperature and the outlet of the water, the temperature, the lowest temperature is cooled by 7.7 degrees. Okay, that's great. Thanks so much for talking with me, Zhengfeng. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Zhengfeng Liu is a professor at Nankai University in China. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places. 
or you can listen on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg for suggestions and sharp ears. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.